one of the sad ironies today in America is that if you add up the unemployment rate, the inflation rate, what people used to call it the misery index, that misery index is lower today than it's been 75% of the time over the last 50 years. But people feel more miserable about the state of the world than they have 93% of the time. The index of consumer sentiment is, is almost as low as it's ever been over the 50-year period. So whatever we're doing in the economy, we may be achieving growth, we may be achieving low unemployment, we may bring inflation down, but it's not making people happy. And I guess if it doesn't make people happy or contented or fulfilled, then kind of what's the point? Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Alan Dunn, to host a series of in-depth conversations on the topic of what it takes to be a world-class allocator. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. And with ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, being well-diversified across many different strategies and themes in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized allocators and the processes they follow to harness the best returns for their clients so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, Please welcome Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for that introduction, Niels. Today I'm joined by David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management. David uh, has been at JP Morgan Asset Management for a number of years. Prior to that, he was at uh, Putnam and a number of other firms as an economist and in a senior strategist. He is a frequent commentator in the media on CNBC and Bloomberg and other financial media outlets. David, it's great to have you on the podcast. How are you? Very glad to be here, Al. Doing, doing very well. Good stuff. Well, I gave a very brief uh, synopsis of your experience, um, but maybe it'll be good to hear from you how you ended up in uh, in economics and in financial markets and what's uh, the journey been for you? Well, it's a sort of a long and winding journey. I, I started out in Dublin. I went to uh, went to UCD, studied economics there. Um my father was a politician in Ireland, um, and the reason I did economics is that he was a lawyer, and he was a, he's a very good public speaker, and he was very convincing, but he knew, and I certainly knew, that, that to some extent there was a little bit of waffle in his economics because he really hadn't studied it. And so I felt that, you know, if I, if I very unoriginally, I wanted to follow in his, full, his footsteps to start, uh, but uh, I figured I needed to know something about economics because Ireland in the 1980s needed people to understand the economy. 
Uh, so I did an undergraduate degree in, in UCD, and then I had nothing but questions. So I thought I'd do a PhD over in America to, to get some answers. Uh, but along the way, I, I uh, met a girl from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and sort of settled down in uh, Massachusetts. And uh, I, I was an economist, a pure economist for, for some time. But then I discovered there was really more of a living to be made as being a strategist. So I, I would, uh, you know, my first love is understanding the American economy and uh, modeling it, forecasting it. Uh, but I also realized that, uh, that the reason this is valuable to people is if you can make predictions then based on what's going to, uh, based on that, uh, predictions on what's going to happen in the bond market, what's going to happen in the stock market, what does it mean for investors? And that's really what I focused on. And so, you know, just before the financial crisis, I moved over to JP Morgan Asset Management and I've been with them for uh, ever since, so that's uh, 15 years now. Um, and I uh, run a team called Market Insights. We're a, a global strategist. We've got uh, a group in uh, New York, group in London, group in uh, Hong Kong, strategists in different countries. Uh, and we just what we focus on is trying to understand the economy as it impacts financial markets and the financial environment, but also very much in trying to explain it clearly. Uh, we think that there is, uh, I think there's, there's so much political bias in what people hear, which makes their, the information completely suspect and use, uh, useless. And then there's so many people who just try to loft the ball over people's heads. They, 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 they set off with a goal of sh showing how smart they are rather than actually trying to communicate. And we very much believe that, that none of this information is worth, worth anything unless it can actually be communicated to average intelligent investors. And that's what we focus on. Very good. Well, I mean, I guess one of the prevailing questions that people are trying to understand at the moment is, you know, where is this recession that everybody has been talking about that uh, many economists have been forecasting and it's been, I guess, maybe the surprise of the year from from an economics perspective. You know, obviously we had very strong Q3 GDP out in the US. What's your perspective on that or how do you explain that to, to clients? Well, I wasn't quite as surprised as consensus. I never actually did call for recession this year. I, I think it was, uh, it was a, a close call, particularly in the middle of the sort of banking mini crisis that we had. But there are two things which really protected the United States from recession and still to some extent do. One of them is that there is no boom in any cyclical sector of the economy. Usually when you have a recession in America, it's because people are buying too many houses or uh, we're doing way too much investment spending like 4Y2K or, or we've got too much inventory or buying too many cars. Uh, but if you look at the cyclical sectors of the economy, none of them are overextended right now. And it's very hard to get a bust without a boom. Uh, it's very, you know, nor, there's a lot of the economy which normally just drives forward. So unless you have a, 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 a sector that, that gets very high and then falls very sharply, it's hard to get a recession. And then the other thing is that we came out of the pandemic with a very weird labor market. And we had 12 million job openings back in March of last year. And we've been gradually whittling away at that. I mean, that that's about four and a half million more job openings than the highest number we've ever seen before. Now, we've got that down to about 9.6 million job openings, so it's, it's down about 2.5 million from its, um, from its peak. Uh, but we're still about 2 million higher than its, its, uh, its you know, long-term long peak. And what that means is that for you know, every month, we're creating hundreds of thousands of jobs, so it's really hard to actually say you're in a recession or put yourself into a recession if you're creating hundreds of thousands of jobs. So I think those two forces have really protected the U.S. economy and then if you look at some of the cyclical sectors, there's sort of offsets in lots of the areas that we thought we were going to see a drag. So the economy is, it's, it's keeping going. But 
You know, the thing that I'd say about the economy is we're at full employment. I mean, we, we've been under 4% unemployment since December of 2021. And when you're at full employment, the economy can only grow slowly. And it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like you're riding a bike uphill slowly. Um, you know, it's uh, if you're riding fast, you're pretty stable. If you're riding slowly, it doesn't take much to knock you over. And I think that that's really where the American economy is today. So sooner or later, um, the economy is going to step in a big banana skin and end up in a recession. Uh, I can't say that that's going to happen in the next year, but if you give me, you know, between now and the end of 2025, probably recession will start. Okay. And I mean, the the simple kind of uh, forecast that uh, or observation maybe a lot of people made was, you know, Fed tightening cycles often end in some kind of accident. You know, you know, obviously it's either a capital markets event or a debt crisis or something. And and obviously we had a, the banking sector wobble, but th- that was managed. I mean, have you been surprised that rates could go from zero to five and a quarter, five and a half, and and not to have that uh, accident or not really? There's sort of two problems, or there are two problems the Federal Reserve creates when it raises interest rates. One of them is the idea that higher interest rates would just naturally slowly drag the economy and slow it down. The other problem is that it can cause financial instability because there are certain companies, businesses, banks, which are all geared to low rates. You suddenly spike the rates up and suddenly they find they're insolvent. And that's kind of what happened with the great financial crisis where, um, where you suddenly had a lot of uh, institutions that were just, they look like they might be insolvent as things crashed around them. Uh, but that's, uh, I think, after the great financial crisis, the regulations put in place thereafter made the US banking system very safe. It didn't exactly make it very uh, innovative or dynamic or risk-taking, but it did make it very safe. And so I think we were less vulnerable to a big, some sort of shock or unexplained event or uh, from high rates. And then let's just the other question of the assumption that high rates slow the economy down. But you know, you know that that has not proven to be very, very much the case. It certainly is not the case that lower rates sped up the economy. And actually, that's true in Europe also. I mean, you know, throughout the last decade, we had super low interest rates. It didn't seem to do a darn bit of good in speeding up the economy or creating inflation. Um, and I think that's true in the United States also. And so there's some really interesting reasons why. I mean, the economy is. The economy is much more about services and much less about investment spending today. And therefore, um, it's much less sensitive to interest rates. Um, and then also, a lot of people have money in cash accounts. And when interest rates go up, they get a, all get a pay increase. And that's, that is helping consumer spending grow here. So I don't think this economy is particularly sensitive to interest rates anyway. Um, and I think that the potential for shock or disruption or dislocation has been reduced by reform since the uh, great financial crisis. Okay, interesting. And I saw you writing recently about the kind of addicted U.S. consumer, um, um, and it was interesting because it was around the time of the uh, personal income and spending data, and uh, which showed that the savings rate was down to about three point four, three point five percent or so, not as low as it has been, but certainly it's back then in a range kind of similar to what we saw maybe pre-financial crisis, which. You know, was very deemed to be very low by historical standards. I mean, what is it? Uh, is it a is it is it a cultural thing, or what's your observation on on why it, the savings rate is so low in the US? And 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 will it always be that way, or is that a risk factor that you see for the economy that that could snap back at some point? 
when the saving rate falls, all it means is, I mean, the saving rate itself is calculated as total disposable income minus total spending as a share of total disposable income. That's how it's measured. Um, and so it's actually a residual of two enormous numbers, uh, rather badly calculated numbers. So I'm always a little suspicious of the actual rate itself. But when it trends down, as it did for most of the 1980s and 90s and into this century, when it trends down, it just means the spending is growing faster than income. We did, and that certainly was the case all the way up until the great financial crisis. Then the saving rate started rising. And I think it started rising because banks just didn't want to take the risk anymore. And actually, before the pandemic started, household balance sheets were in very good shape. I mean, over 90% of mortgages in the United States are fixed-rate mortgages, 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. And so if interest rates go up, it doesn't affect people at all, most people. And uh, people had, you know, they used the pandemic to pay down credit card debt. Now that credit card debt has gone back up again. But if you look at debt service as a percentage of disposable income, it's really just back to where it was before the pandemic, and it's way below where it was before the financial crisis. So I think that when you look at the saving rate and you look at back to before the financial crisis, it's kind of missing the point. I mean, it is what we have is the impact of a year or two's bad behavior, in quotes, right now. But back in the financial crisis, we had the cumulative effect of 25 years of bad behavior. And so I don't think it's your balance sheets are in nearly as bad shape as they were back then. Okay. And you mentioned how maybe the U.S. economy isn't so rate sensitive, um, but I mean, going back to the point about you know Fed tightening cycles ending and accidents, I think if you look back over 30, 40 years, there there have been I don't know if it's been one or two soft landings. Certainly, the nineteen ninety four ninety five period was a soft landing, but generally, um, it's been difficult to engineer a soft landing. And um, if you were to I mean, obviously, you've looked at many cycles, you've been in the markets for a number of decades. Is there any obvious parallel now when you look at the economy, or do you think this cycle is very unusual relative to the past? You know, they're, they're all unusual. It's, uh, the thing about a recession is it's, it's, it's kind of like the, uh, the start of the, the, the book Anna Karenina, where they say all happy families are happy in the same way, but all unhappy families are unhappy in a very unique way. And recessions are all uniquely bad, but they all have their own characteristics. Uh, and so, no, I don't think there's a parallel. I think, and I think it's very dangerous to draw that parallel. I see people drawing parallels all the time. Then, for example, over the last two years, they said, oh, this is just like the 1970s. And it wasn't just like the 1970s. And it was so important that the Federal Reserve understand that. They didn't really. Um, but you know, they, haven't, they haven't managed to sink the economy yet. But, it's, uh, but it's, I think it's very dangerous to try, try and find parallels in an economy that is constantly evolving and adapting over time. And um, I mean, it sounds like you've been, you're a bit skeptical as to whether the Fed needed to raise rates as much as, as they have done. I mean, taking a perspective on central banks going back over maybe the last decade, some people would have said, well, maybe was the Fed part of the problem in the first place in kind of being too eager to try and, you know, stimulate the economy to push up inflation to hit that 2% level when it was, whenever it was one and a half percent or so. I mean, do you think do you think central bankers in general have a too great uh, a sense of their ability to influence the economy? Would that be fair to say? Yes, it, very fair to say. I think there. First of all, let me say about the Federal Reserve, and I think I can say this about uh, the European Central Bank and other central banks around the world. Um, they do intend well, and that that puts them probably a little bit ahead of the game relative to other people in making policy in in the government. I think they do want to do the right thing. Uh, but what we've seen in history 
is that central banks are very good at dealing with a financial crisis because they essentially have a money tree. And if you've got a money tree, you can, bat up, uh, you can buy up any number of bad assets and you can stabilize things. And that's a role that central banks, when they played it, have played it very well over the years. And they did that after the great financial crisis. What they're very bad at doing is directing the economy, either with regard to uh, economic growth or with regard to inflation. They can't seem to get it to speed up. And then once it's sped up for other reasons, they can't seem to get it to slow down. Um, and I think the way I think about it is that they make these sort of solemn pronouncements about, oh, we're moving rates up 25 basis points or down 25 basis points today, as if this was going to move the, 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 the whole economy. But it's, it's like they're you know, it's like they're, they're in this rather unwieldy boat in a very uh, turbulent river with a, a heavy rapids and so forth. They've got this tiny little paddle. And so they're paddling furiously on the right. And then when, it's go, when things don't work out, they paddle furiously on the left. But the truth is, the river is taking the boat wherever the river wants to take the boat. And all they can do, all they do by pushing rates too high and then too low and then too high again is destabilize financial assets and encourage um, suboptimal asset allocation or resource allocation across the economy. So I wish that they would just stick to an appropriate monetary policy for the long run and then occasionally step in if there is a financial crisis. I guess the, not a counter argument, but another perspective on this is that, you know, the bond market should migrate to the, the kind of the, the correct level of interest rates, regardless maybe of, of, of the central bank. And obviously what we've seen lately is, is a, a very pronounced rise in yields just since the summer. Whereas maybe if we had spoken three or four months ago, I might've been asking you why have bond yields not risen so, so much in response to the, to the tightening cycle. So, I mean, what do you think happened in the summer to, to prompt that change in sentiment? And what's your perspective on debt sustainability, et cetera? Is that a concern or not? Well, I think the, the first thing that happened is that people realized that the US economy was going to go into recession. You know, we, we published this 4.9% in GDP for the third quarter. And that was published, I think, on Halloween. But it was quite clear for a month or two before that, that the economy wasn't just not slowing down, it was actually speeding up. And so that, I think, had an impact on the bond market. I think the second thing that had an impact on the bond market is as the smoke cleared after some of the debt ceiling debates over the summer and you know, the government shutdown stuff, as that smoke cleared, it became apparent that the US government was running a bigger deficit than everybody thought. And in fact, the deficit for the last fiscal year was $1.7 trillion. And even that is lower than it would have been without a sort of an accounting entry for student loan uh, costs, which really is not really part of the budget. So in real terms, the, the, the budget deficit was about $2 trillion last year. It's going to be about that this year. And then when you add on to that, the fact that the Federal Reserve is reducing its own holdings of treasury bonds by about $720 billion per year, what it means is the global capital markets now have to find a way of coming up with $2.7 trillion this year to fund the US government. And that's a pretty heavy lift. And so I think that, I think that the, the real, the sort of two problems are one, it looked like economic recession was off the, off the table. And two, that's just a lot of debt to try to, to sell to the markets. And I think we can sell that debt to the markets, but probably not at as low interest rates as we were paying uh, you know, before, the, uh, before the pandemic. And obviously, you know, once the, you know, the market starts moving in one direction and yield starts to rise, it seems to influence sentiment. Obviously, it's the nature of markets. And you start seeing all the calls about, you know, uh, debt crises. I think Ray Dalio is out saying the US will face a fiscal crisis. Um, 
And obviously, Barry Eichengreen presented a paper around this at Jackson Hole, which kind of was a pretty pessimistic perspective, I would say, saying high debt levels, high deficits are here to stay. Not, not suggesting that we're in for a crisis anytime soon, but really suggesting that the conditions that would be needed for fiscal consolidation would not be in play. So would you, would you concur with that perspective that high debt, high deficits are going to be a feature of the landscape going forward? Yes. Uh, the, the, the U.S. economy, un, unlike, for example, the Irish economy, um, is a slow-growing beast, and there, there's only a certain pace it can do going forward. It's, it's, since the turn of the century, it has grown at an average annual rate of 2% in real terms per year. And that's what it's going to do going forward, maybe a little bit less than that. And um, in that kind of economy, you can't grow your way out of the debt and the deficit. Uh, the only way you can deal with the debt and the deficit is you have to make tough choices. You have to cut defense spending, cut Medicare, cut Medicaid, cut Social Security, um, and increase taxes. Um, but no politician in America will get elected if they say they are going to cut defense, cut Social Security, cut Medicare, cut Medicaid, and raise taxes. And because of that, I would agree that we are stuck in high deficits and high and growing debt um, for a long time to come. The thing is that as an investor, you probably don't. You probably want to bet against this causing a crisis anytime soon, because pe- people do need to save for retirement. I mean, there are billions of people around the world who are saving for retirement, and ultimately, the foundation of all those savings, you need to have a secure asset. And I sort of think of U.S. Treasury bonds as being right at the bedrock of the global financial system. Um, and so there will be demand for that. It may not be, uh, the government may not be able to borrow money as cheaply as the past, but I don't think it's going to cause a crisis anytime soon. I mean, it does, it does raise, I suppose, a, a, a question around, you know, as you say, we're into a period of, of maybe a higher debt, high, high deficits, and, and it touched on kind of the, the, the change in the landscape with respect to the Fed balance sheet, et cetera. I mean, in aggregate, do you think that's all pointing to, you know, a very different kind of macro backdrop and investing landscape in, in this decade versus the last? Obviously, the last decade was very unusual, zero interest rates, QE, low inflation, stable growth. I mean, if you were to paint a picture of what the next 10 years in broad terms might look like, well, what, what do you think that, that is? Well, let's, let's say barring shocks for a moment before we talk about any of this, but and I'll, we'll obviously come back to that. But barring shocks, I don't think that'll be quite as good as the last decade in terms of the environment. Uh, what I think we will do is we will get back to low inflation. I am convinced that inflation is coming back down to 2% by the fourth quarter of next year. And we'll be below 2% in 2025. I think that's the direction the US economy is simply going in. Um, but I don't think the Federal Reserve will cut rates down to zero again. And so you will end up with positive real rates when the US has a recession. Uh, when it inevitably that happens, then the Federal Reserve will normalize policy. So instead of looking at a federal funds rate of between five and five or five and a quarter or five and a half percent, you might end up with something in the two and a half to three percent range. I think that's quite possible. Um, but I don't expect us to get down to zero again. So to that extent, I don't think it'll be there will be a waft of free money around going forward. I, I think and I hope that the European Central Bank is not going to start uh, dabbling in negative interest rates again, which I think is a terrible idea. But uh, So I don't think it's going to be quite that good for asset prices, but I think it will be uh, it will be good in terms of just the overall level of inflation. And obviously, from a cyclical perspective, I take your point on inflation. You know, obviously, the 
direction of travel at the moment. I mean, out in the market, there's still different views. Uh, you know, there is the kind of the sticky inflation view, and there's a whole raft of kind of structural factors people point to as potential factors that may elevate inflation over time, such as higher investment in relation to the greening of the global economy and deglobalization. And I saw you writing about, you know, the rise of industrial policy lately. So all of these kind of structural factors, which could influence inflation to differing degrees. Sounds like you're fairly sanguine on the longer term outlook. Any reason for that? Yeah, no, I feel better about US inflation than I do about inflation in, for example, the United Kingdom or Europe, or, or even oddly enough in Japan. But in the US, the thing that, that really strikes me about the US is inflation didn't show up when the Federal Reserve eased policy. Inflation didn't show up when the Federal Reserve had negative real rates. Inflation, and that's because, as I said earlier, I don't think the monetary policy is capable of actually stimulating econ the economy. Well, you can bring the horse to water, but he will drink. Uh, but when you do fiscal stimulus, it's like you set up a, an intravenous drip on the horse. And, uh, and, the, and the, particularly if you're giving money to lower middle income consumers, they will spend it. And the problem is if they spend it on stuff that isn't there, you end up with inflation. I think that's really what happened. But you know, I, I don't think that the Fed caused inflation then. And I, but also, I think more importantly, when I look at inflation in the 1970s and then I look at inflation in, in 2020, in the early 2020s, what really strikes me is a period between those between 1983 or 84 and 2019, where inflation basically went sideways or down for 40 years. And a lot of times people thought it was going to pick up, and it never did. And I think there are three reasons for that. One of them is that you've got much less union power in America than you had back then. Back, back in the 1970s, 25% of the private sector workforce was in a union. And today it's about 6%. And workers don't have bargaining power, and that stops a price wage spiral. A second of all, you've got information technology, which tends to um, help buyers more than sellers. I mean, sellers always know more about the thing they're selling than buyers do. But if information technology has turned so many markets into competitive markets, it's really helped push inflation down. And then the third thing is you've just got rising and, and huge inequality. Um, half the income in America is received by the top 10% of households. And the way the top 10% of households, in terms of their economic behavior, the biggest difference between the top 10% of households and everybody else is the top 10% save. They save about 37% of their income. Everybody else doesn't save anything at all. But if so much of income is going to people who save, what that does is sort of creates this, a leakage in the circular flow of income. I mean, the idea is you're supposed to produce $100 worth of output, and that generates $100 of income. The income is supposed to come around the economy by the output. But 37% of that is leaking out of the economy to go to investments. So that's why you could see stock prices go up, bond prices go up, house prices go up, but you don't see enough demand for basic goods and services. And that has tended to push down inflation. I think, that, I think it's something of a global phenomenon, but it's certainly uh, very prevalent in the United States. I think there is more union power in Europe. There are more regulations which tend to lock in inflation increases. So I think inflation will be stickier in Europe and in the UK. And probably in Japan because they, they're sort of pressing their luck here. They don't want to, they, they, they seem to love inflation um, for whatever reason. But uh, in America, I think inflation's uh, just headed down. It's in the long run, this is not an inflationary economy. And I mean, of those points that you mentioned, do you see any sign of a shift? I mean, some of the points people will say are, okay, union power has been low, but are we starting to see a shift in that dynamic? Obviously, Biden out there on the picket lines with, with UAW workers recently. 
I'm just been a, a symbol of that maybe. Um, and then obviously, 1983 to 2019, the integration of China into the global economy, the dividend from that, the peace dividend, I guess, as well from stable global uh, geopolitical uh, uh, situation. You know, lots of people can point to possible changes at the margin and then draw an argument that maybe that whole period is different. It's the end of neoliberalism. We're seeing a shift back towards more active fiscal policy, more active industrial policy, and that that could be part of an, a more inflation-prone economy. Um, yeah, well, there may be parts of the global economy which are more inflation-prone because of it. Uh, but on the whole issue of deglobalization, I do recognize the integration of a very cheap labor force in China into the global economy did act as a deflationary influence for many years. But I don't really think that globalization is exactly going to go in reverse here. I think it's sort of stalled out. Um, but I think what you could end up with is a, a sort of a new equilibrium where you've got the, the, the trading block of the autocrats and the trading block of the democracies. Uh, and a, a lot of people talk not about uh, outsourcing or resourcing, but friend sourcing. And so if, uh, if stuff is made by cheap labor in Malaysia or Vietnam or Mexico, as opposed to China, so be it. Um, India is trying to grow very fast as a matter of actually how that, that's not going to be particularly high cost. So I think there are enough countries where, which have a cheap labor force to, to try to, you know, to avoid that. So uh, that, that's kind of how I see it. And then on union power, well, I think we've had about 20 major strikes in the United States so far this year including the, the UAW strikes, back, and those are 20 major strikes, strikes with more than 1,000 workers. If you go back from 1965 to 1979, there were more than 200 major strikes in America every single year. In fact, back in 1974, there were 424 major strikes. So, that is, so while strikes have gotten a certain amount of media play this year, it is a very, very tiny fraction of the labor force that is unionized, an even smaller fraction. That, that labor force that is unionized and actually out on strike for higher wages. Maybe talking about some of those structural themes that, 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 I, that I mentioned a, a moment ago, and it, these are all things that uh, you pick up in the uh, J.P. Morgan Asset Manager just released their long-term capital market assumptions, and you talk about, I guess, the state of the world and what it might look like on a, on a medium to long-term basis. So maybe to pick up on some of the points within that, and we've kind of talked about some of it. So I think you see U.S. real GDP, as you say, just below 2% going forward, which is kind of reflective of what we've seen. And inflation a little bit higher than what we've seen, up at 2.5%. Probably, as you say, some of the areas where you're seeing more notable changes are in, in inflation in Europe and, and uh, the Eurozone in Japan. And in the Eurozone in particular, I mean, is that just related to some of those factors you're, you were talking about there from a unionization perspective, or is it more a structural growth story that, that you're more optimistic on? Well, I think it's, no, it's not so much structural growth, I have to say. I think, um, you know, I think Europe can grow faster. I think the Eurozone actually is seeming to operate a slightly better post-Brexit than it did before Brexit. Uh, and I don't want to comment more than one of that, I guess, but it, it does seem that way. But you know, it just takes a long time for, to, to get things going in Europe. I mean, there's, there's been all this talk about fiscal stimulus because of green transition, but if you look at the actual purchasing manager data or GDP data coming out of Europe, the whole economy seems as flat as a pancake. And in fact, for all the talk about how the energy transition is going to, um, you know, fuel economic growth in Europe, 
Uh, one of the biggest problems seems to be that the cost of energy is so high for German manufacturers, they just can't make money. And uh, that's actually slowing down the European economy. Um, so no, it's not, that I, it's not that I think that um, I don't have a higher inflation outlook for Europe because of speedier economic growth. Uh, part of it is a, a, a little bit more unionization, but also part of, part of its regulation. I mean, there, there are countries in Europe where um, everybody's entitled to a wage increase to compensate themselves for uh, for prior inflation. I mean, in America, you know, bosses allowed to workers who say that. Um, so it's, uh, I think there there are embedded in the system in Europe a lot of things which cause inflation to linger in a way that it doesn't uh, in the United States. Interesting. And from a Japanese perspective, also seeing uh, a, a, a trend higher in inflation there. So, I mean, do you, do you see Japan now as being out of that deflationary phase that, 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 that it was in for so long? Yes. Well, be careful what you wish for. I mean, the thing that I worry about with Japan is just how much debt they have. Because if they ever had to pay true market interest rates on that debt, you could bankrupt. Now, you know, the, the uh, Bank of Japan owns about half the uh, outstanding JGB uh, issuance, which is kind of amazing. So I don't think there's a problem there right now. But, but right now, Japan is seeing above trend growth and is seeing its inflation rate go up, and they want to see their inflation rate go up, as opposed to every other central bank in the world who's trying to get their inflation rate to come down. Uh, and ultimately, you know, one of the assumptions we make in our forecast is that, you know, while we don't think the monetary policy is particularly effective, we do think it's a reasonable forecast in the long run that that uh, central banks will get what more or less what they wish for in terms of an inflation rate. Okay, and maybe moving into more of the um, asset perspective and asset allocation and investment um, returns part of the the forecast. So you see, I think U.S. Uh, equities delivering around seven percent going forward. Which would obviously be reasonable returns, but but below, I, I guess, very long term averages in terms of nominal returns, and um, on in terms of cash rates, it's it's uh, looks like two point nine percent, and then uh, bond returns just under four percent, and and then for a for for a dollar based global or sixty forty, it's it's at seven percent, but a US specific. US sixty forty would be more like six percent. So I mean, all in all, it it seems to be a picture of fairly okay kind of environment, not not fantastic, not terrible. Obviously, fixed income has become more interesting and equities are presumably valuations are constraining future returns. Is that a fair synopsis? Yeah, I think that I think that's right. Um, and so you know last year we were looking at a 7.9% return from US large cap stocks and this year we're looking for a 7% return. And the reason is you know we cut off our forecast on September 30th, and the market was a lot higher on September 30th, 2024 than it was, oh, sorry, 2023 than it was uh, September 30th, 2022. So that's that's kind of that's why we have a, a lower outlook for U.S. equities than we did a year ago. But it's still very good, and I, I would emphasize that you know our outlook for cash is a lot weaker than current cash rates. I mean, currently you can get uh, above five percent on on cash, but we do think in the long run a total return from cash is only going to be about 2.9%. Um, so we do think that it's going to be a lot lower than it's, you know, in any one year, it may not make that much difference to make 7% of your money or 2.9%, but over, over a 10, 15, 20-year period, it makes a huge difference. Uh, long-term investors generally should not be putting long-term money in cash. Absolutely. One of the uh, points you do uh, that, that does get picked up within the uh, report is around the role of bonds in a portfolio. And, and obviously, 
bonds are attractive again now, I guess, from an investment perspective as yields have backed up. Uh, and, and the report does point out that, that they can still be diversifiers in the case of a disinflationary shock, but obviously not, I guess, in the case of stagflationary shocks like we saw last year. Um, and, and obviously that, that negative correlation between bonds and equities, which was so persistent for, I guess, 15, 20 years, now has become less reliable. So, I mean, when you're talking to clients about that, um, is is it that it's no, you know, it, that, that investors should now look beyond 60-40? I guess everybody naturally does look beyond 60-40, but it does strengthen the case for alternatives, I guess, and that seems to be something that comes up uh, in the report. Well, yes, I, we think that we think there is a strategic reason for having alternatives in the portfolio. It does diversify; it's a diversified source of income and total return, which with, we think does need to be in a, in a portfolio. I do think, though, that um, the long-term role of bonds as a diversifier will play out for for almost all of the next ten to fifteen years. We have this insect in America called the, the cicada. And it, and it has it's this weird insect. It sleeps for 17 years. And then every 17 years, it pops out of the ground and, and starts squawking. The whole place is full of cicadas. And then they die off. They'll come back for 17 years. Um, and, you know, when they, uh, they're a real nuisance when they're there. But I sort of feel like you should celebrate them because they're so rare. And I think, to me, a year in which bonds are not doing their job in, in helping diversify a portfolio, they're not zigging when stocks zag, that is actually very rare. And that did happen when inflation, it does happen when the inflation is a story. Inflation is going up a lot, then bonds and stocks will go down. If inflation is coming down a lot, then bonds and stocks will go up. But if the story stops being about inflation and begins to be about real economic growth, a recession or not a recession going forward, as is typically the story, um, if, that's the, if that's the issue, then news that causes stocks to zag will cause bonds to zig and vice versa. So I, I, I don't have any fears about the ability of bonds to mostly diver, help diversify a portfolio. Um, I, and I also would say that starting today, you're getting a pretty decent income on fixed income, so that's kind of good too. I don't think you get the base, the the opportunity for capital gain that you had over many years. I think I think people kind of got spoiled in the bond market, thinking that well, okay, so yields are five percent, but I'm going to make a bit of a capital gain, so maybe make seven, eight percent by this year. And I don't think that's going to be the case going forward in the long run because we're starting with lower yields. Um, and I think you get one year where you get decent capital gains when, when uh, rates come back down to more neutral levels, and then, and then that's kind of over. Um, but you know, as as you say, you know, one of the things we do focus on is alternatives. And I think it's it's something where if so long as you can you can do it in and uh, in a tax efficient manner and in a way that's uh, that that's permitted under the regulations. I think having a stable alternative in the portfolio can provide you with income and growth and diversification. Yeah, and just come back to the equity forecast. You know, with U.S. equity large cap equities at seven percent. I mean, the the equity people talk about U.S. equities are large cap as a group, but it's always be, almost become you know two separate groups of the magnificent seven and the rest. Taking your you know just market observer hat. Uh, I mean, uh, as opposed to economists, you, you know, you've seen many cycles. I'm not sure if you're around for, for the nifty 50, but, you know, I was having this conversation with somebody yesterday. Like, if you put a label like Magnificent 7 on a set of stocks, it's almost asking for trouble because it does kind of uh, bring back memories of that kind of thing. 
I mean, how how worried are you about you know a significant re-raising of those stocks at some point? One might have expected it; it might have happened with with higher yields, and it hasn't. Are well, we through the, the concern there? Well, your legitimate concern is one of the reasons why uh, people may want to be a little bit more active in their um, asset allocation rather than just using indexes because the indexes will be overweight, whatever a hype, and because they're capitalized weighted, they will t- they will automatically be overweight the the, the most overpriced stocks. Um, and I think there is an issue there, but you know, I still would defend that seven percent long term forecast. It may be higher than that for, or lower than that for the for the sort of top seven stocks or top ten stocks. Uh, they may get lower returns going forward, but the other four hundred eighty four stocks in the S and P five hundred will uh, we should do better. So um, I do think it's worth differentiating between them, but just just because there are some stocks that are pretty overvalued. Um, it also implies that there are plenty of stocks that are not overvalued by any means and actually looking like rather good good values if we if we're right on inflation. Yeah. And um, the the uh, there's a couple of thematic pieces within the the, the capital markets uh, piece. One is on industrial policy, which I guess assesses the rise of industrial policy from a couple of different lenses. One from more of a an economic perspective as to does it make sense? And then, secondly, you know, what 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 is the kind of the market and, and economic um, uh, and investment implications for it? I mean, and, and it is quite striking how we have seen the shift towards subsidies and and encouraging um, certain, uh, you know, I suppose as you say, nearshoring or, or, or uh, uh, encouraging firms back back to back to the U.S. Uh, in the case of Bidenomics. I mean, it's do you think this is going to be a, a feature of the landscape on a multi-year basis and is that something to build portfolios around from in terms of thematic plays? Well, I think I think it's very important to be aware of it uh, because I think that there are a lot of governments who are going to very actively tip the scales within financial markets and you need to know which way they're going to tip them. As an economist, I'm somewhat skeptical of the ability of governments to find the right thing to do. I mean, even on um, on climate change, I mean, uh, you know, I absolutely fully believe that we need to do something about climate change. But unless I'm missing something in the science completely, um, the global climate is actually affected by global activity. And no matter what Europe does, um, or even what the United States does, um, if China keeps on spewing out carbon, uh, there is no way to prevent uh, the temperature from keeping on rising. But also, some of the attempts to use government policy to try to reduce Consumption certainly here in the United States are, you know, some of the subsidies are, are very, you know, ill-conceived. I mean, let me give you an example. In the United States, they have a weird rule called the Corporate Average Fuel Efficiency Standard for Vehicles, um, and they introduced this many, many years ago. And they said that a car has to be, uh, on average, the fleet that's sold by by an automaker has to have a certain fuel efficiency, maybe twenty-five miles a gallon. And then light trucks have to, well, they're bigger, but they have to have a fuel efficiency of maybe 17 miles a gallon. Um, and they introduced this, in the, and over the years, they talked about, hey, this is great, this is, this is making our, fuel, our um, fleet more efficient. But did you ever notice that in America, 80% of the vehicles are now classified as light trucks? Uh, people do nothing but buy SUVs and light trucks. And the older companies have every incentive to do so because they've got a lower fuel efficiency standard they have to meet. So, in fact, America is driving around in some of the least efficient vehicles in the world, uh, precisely because of a standard that was introduced to try to make the fleet more efficient. 
and and uh, there there are so many cases of that all over the world that it's uh, or uh, that I am somewhat skeptical that a that a government that depends upon the votes of people easily led by populist leaders that those governments will actually introduce policies which achieve the things they're supposed to achieve. So you're kind of pessimistic on climate change transition then, or, or, or is that just particularly I, with respect well, to the US? I, am, I, I, I think that there are plenty of trends to take advantage of. I think electric vehicles are absolutely for real. I think AI is absolutely for real too. Um, but I think, you know, I think there are lots, uh, you know, I think there's uh, lots of alternative energy sources, um, you know, wind farm, solar, there, there are plenty of things that will get that will benefit from government subsidies and the public's desire to do something about um, global warming, and there are investment themes there. I am skeptical that it will make a whit of difference in terms of global carbon emissions because it's essentially a global problem, and we won't do the most obvious thing, which is a global carbon tax. If you have a global carbon tax, you can deal with the problem. Everything else is kind of just window dressing. I mean, you touched on AI there, and that was a big driver of the markets, at least for a number of months during the summer. And McKinsey had a report out at the time, which was well, uh, kind of talked about about the potential benefit. Obviously, um, it came out around the time that everybody was looking at ChatGPT, so it seemed to capture people's imagination. But I mean, it, it was striking that if you look at the McKinsey report, I think they were saying the boost to productivity could be anywhere from you know, 0.1 to 0.7% annually, and the gains might accrue largely from 2030 onwards. So pretty pretty wide bands in terms of when this might practically start to impact the, the economy. What's your sense on, on, on those questions? It's very hard to define the magnitudes here, but I do think it's a big deal. Uh, you know, in our long-term capital market assumptions, we added just one-tenth of a percent to global economic growth in every year for the next 10 to 15 years just because of AI. Uh, we realize that, that may be a low ball estimate, but we also think that the gains will be more important in the out years. But you know, when I was, I was doing a podcast with somebody who was, who was more of an expert, much more of an expert in AI than I am, and one of the things that he, he said to me that I thought was really profound is that English is going to be the programming language of the future. Um, it used to, you know, the thing about a generative AI, which is so cool, is not only can it provide it provide you with output that is basically simple English, but it can also interpret simple English in a way that to provide you with coding. And that could be tremendously important. I mean, if you if you're the manager the manager at the local McDonald's and you can tell the robot operating the you know, the hamburger flippers at the back to please flip them twice rather than once, and then package them up in a certain way and bring them up to the front counter. And if you can do all that by saying it, and that is all conversion to code, so he actually does it, the robot does it, uh, then it has tremendous implications. Um, similarly, I think that the combination of AI and robotics can have profound implications for transportation. Uh, you know, we're, 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 there are millions and millions of people around the world uh, you know, driving Ubers and taxis and planes and ships and trains. We're doing essentially a simple job. Uh, which AI is quite capable of doing in the long run. Um, and the, and the, the more you have a labor shortage, the more of these jobs there are. Um, and you can see that over time, you know, if you can find a way of programming a type of lawnmower, which will, um, you know, you can sell to anybody, which will happen to know exactly how to mow the lawn at uh, your particular house, map, map the whole thing out, 
goes out itself every every second Saturday morning, knows not to go out the rain, and just does the job. It's not very difficult programming um, and have a profound impact. So I think over time, as this technology explosion, particularly in a world where labor is short, it, it, there's a shortage of labor. Um, I think we'll have profound impact on productivity. And I mean, that's you say that kind of in a in a, in a world of labor shortages. Um, even even with that, presumably, there, obviously, there will be dislocations. Then, as some workers are displaced, but how do you think that? How do you see that being managed politically? Um, is is that a source of like a, kind of like a second wave of globalization in terms of, you know, well, not just blue collar, I guess, white collar workers being displaced? Um, and I, you know, any thoughts on how that might evolve? Well, I think first of all, there's no reason why it needs to push up the unemployment rate. Every Revolution technology that we've seen since the start of the Industrial Revolution, people have said this is going to cost jobs and there'll be no jobs for people. Um, and yet the, the economy has always created jobs. There are people, humans, have an almost unlimited demand for stuff and services. There's no end of stuff that we want. Um, and provided, you know, what's just going to happen is the stuff that we want is going to evolve over time. And, and so long as there are some artificial constraints on uh, supply, there's no reason why that shouldn't fully employ everybody who wants to work. Um, there'll be business cycles and so forth, but um, I don't think it's going to cause higher unemployment. It could cause greater inequality. Um, and it's something I very much worry about because inequality is really severe already. And I think there are a lot of people who feel isolated in the economy. They feel like they're just uh, um, servants of the machine, so to speak. And they might quite literally become servants of the machine in the AI world. Um, and it's you, you almost have two classes of people, those who are programming and running the machines and those who are being run by the machines. Um, and I do think it could make inequality worse. I, could, I think it could, it could um, make social discontent worse. I don't expect that it's going to cause, you know, thousands to riot on the streets, at least not in the United States it won't. Um, but I think there are, there are profound social challenges to all of this technology. Um, and the technology we've introduced so far this century, which I think you know, erodes a lot of society in a lot of ways. And I think we have to think very carefully about that. But I don't, you know, if you're, if you're using the metrics of an economist, real economic growth, um, unemployment, productivity, um, it's mostly good. So it's all good. So it's higher economic growth and higher productivity. So that's presumably that would be good for stocks and would be, would be associated with higher interest rates over time as well. Is that fair to say, or, or, or a higher neutral rate? Good, good for good for stocks because generally speaking, companies are quite good at taking advantage of productivity gains and scooping them up for themselves. Um, not necessarily higher inflation. I mean, a higher productivity tends to reduce inflation, not increase it. So I think that and I don't see there's any reason why this causes excess demand relative to supply. I mean, it's basically a way of providing supply more cheaply. So I don't think it means higher inflation. Uh, but I do want to emphasize that you know, as an economist, I've I always feel guilty about the, this constant focus on what's going to push up the price of stocks or price of bonds or GDP. If you know, one of the one of the sad ironies today in America is that if you add up the unemployment rate and the inflation rate, what people used to call that the misery index, that misery index is lower today than it's been seventy five percent of the time over the last fifty years. But people feel more miserable about the state of the world than they have ninety three percent of the time. The index of consumer sentiment. Is, is almost as low as it's ever been over the 50-year period. So whatever we're doing in the economy, we may be achieving growth, we may be achieving low unemployment, we may be bringing inflation down, but it's not making people happy. And I guess if it doesn't make people happy or contented or fulfilled, 
And kind of what's the point? Yeah. Well, that seems to be a global phenomenon. We have it here in Ireland as well. Obviously, unemployment's very low, but everybody's pointing to uh, the housing crisis, the health crisis, etc. I mean, is it the same in the US? As you say, I mean, ostensibly, these are this is a great period for uh, based on on those economic measures. But uh, you know, Biden's popularity is is low, and you know, there's this even across Europe, there's a shift. Uh, shifted to the right in Germany. Obviously, Germany has their own uh, economic problems. But yeah, there seems to be uh, this quite discontent with economic performance, even though it should, th- that, that's something you should see from, based on the data, as you say. Well, I think I think that's true. And I think I don't think it's just that, that, that we're missing something here necessarily. I think it has a lot to do with how people get, in, get information. I mean, we talk all the time, I'm sure you do too, about um, the damage caused to young people by social media. Um, and by you know, be constantly on their phones and and whatever you know, getting likes and Instagram and so forth. But equally, so the feed of information you get on my the feed I get on, on my Facebook page, it just reflects whatever I clicked last. And when the only way they can get get me to to read something is it's got to make me very scared or very angry. And so we've got an entire industry devoted to making people scared and angry. Um, and um, that is having an eroding effect on people's well being. Um, so I, you know, I genuinely don't think things are as bad as people think. A lot, of, and you can see this in survey data. You people ask, well, how are things in your in your family? Oh, pretty good. How you? How's your living standards? You doing okay? Yeah. And how's the country doing? Oh, it's terrible. Oh, it's just dreadful. So, and uh, you know, how can how can everybody individually think they're doing okay and their their little neighborhoods doing all right, but the country is going to going to fall? And then that's that's really what's that's the effect of drinking in all this this biased information. And, you know, I I. I I personally think that the, the best solution for a lot of um, the woes of the American economy and the and indeed probably the Irish economy or the European economy too is um, you know you need a, a a good jug of water in which you can put yourself and a good baseball bat in which you can beat up your television and if you can do those two things you can feel a lot better about life. Absolutely. Well, I mean, uh, without getting into a whole political dis- discussion, I, I'm conscious that we're a year out from from the presidential election in the US. Um, you know, obviously, we've had a, a very important shift in policy with Biden economics in the last number of years, but it was an unusual period, at least at the start, when you know Democrats had had control of of, of the full uh, policymaking agenda. How do you see that playing out over the next four years, or is it too hard to say? Obviously. Despite all of the legal battles, Trump looks to be the front runner based on the betting markets at the moment, very marginally. If we were to go back to that type of scenario, would would that be a concern, or from the protectionist agenda, or or not from from an uh, an investment strategy perspective? I don't think I, I don't think that you could say that Donald Trump is a sort of conviction politician. I mean, it's not that he actually believes in, um, you know, in the right to life or believes in um, restricting trade or believes actually even in restricting immigration. His whole career up until he got into politics would suggest that he, A, believes in uh, the right to choose, um, B, um, is quite happy to, to, to benefit from international trade, and C, is quite happy to employ immigrants. Um, so I, I think he's a conviction politician, and because of that, policy will be whatever suits the times. But it is—it's concerning. Uh, the you know, I think just the whole U.S. election system is concerning. You know, I try to walk the narrow line between the parties. I really, it's not my job to help you about it, but I, I don't try to do that. 
But I am concerned about the fact that the, the majority of the population in America do not want what they're going to get, which is a runoff between Biden and Trump at the moment. Now, they're both very old men. Um, and so it's quite possible that one of them is going to, you know, um, uh, run into some sort of roadblock. So it may not be Trump Biden at the, uh, this time next year. Uh, but if it is, um, you know, it's uh, it's pretty hard to predict exactly the the the, the outcome of that. I, I just would say that in the long run, people who, generally speaking, people overestimate the impact of Washington on the market, and uh, there are a lot of Republicans wouldn't invest while Obama was president. A lot of Democrats wouldn't invest while Trump was president. Stock market went up in both cases. One topic I just wanted to get to before we wrap up is around the kind of uh, demographic uh, situation and uh, many baby boomers now retiring in the US. Um, and are you seeing any interesting uh, impacts of that? So, for example, I was reading a comment today around, you know, an expectation of accelerated house sales from baby boomers has been one possible dynamic. Obviously, baby boomers have, have accumulated a lot of wealth already. So, you know, is their disposal of financial assets going to be an important uh, theme in markets in the next decade? Um, would that be a headwind for financial, ass financial assets? Or have you done any work around any particular thoughts around that? I don't think it should be too much of a headwind for financial assets because I think people will take systematic withdrawals from portfolios and maybe they take 4% out per year or something like that, but it'll be a relatively slow process. And even when it comes to selling the, the, the family home, one of the problems right now is it's almost impossible to sell a family home because you have to buy something else. And if, you, if, you, if it's just a cash transaction, that that I guess that can work out. But if, if um, for... You know, if it involves taking out a mortgage and something else, it's it's very difficult, and home prices are very high. So we're seeing we're not seeing a lot of inventory on the market, and the first baby boomer retired in 2012, so that's 11 11 years ago. Um, and we haven't seen a lot of inventory come in the market. I think it will be slow to come on the market. Um, so I I don't think that's going to push down asset prices in 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 a big way. No, I think I think for asset prices the key is inflation. If we get back to low inflation, low in inflation justifies low interest rates, which justify higher multiples. I think that's that's really the key. And from an economic perspective, do you see as people retire, you know, are they tending to spend less? Is that, I mean, is are you? That's the kind of the textbook uh, answer, I guess, that the aging population is is disinflationary. But would you say you're seeing that in the data? Yeah, yeah. Well, what we find is that people. Occasionally, do a splurge uh, just after they retire, so they do the trip they never intended to do. It. They want to make sure they visit all the grandchildren and so forth. Uh, but then, over time, the spending comes down, and then it picks up right at the end because, unfortunately, medical care uh, with expenses. But um, but it, it follows a fairly predictable pattern. Um, I do think that, uh, despite the impact of the pandemic for health reasons, I think that we will see a re a you know a resumption of the the labor force participation of older Americans. I think people get awfully bored not working. So uh, I think there are people who who won't you know pull the trigger of retiring quite as soon as uh, their, their parents would have done. I think we want to get back to that because uh, there's a huge demand for labor and people are, are scared about you know, what their life's going to be like if they've got nothing to do. Absolutely. Well, maybe that's a, a good place to pause. And before we, we wrap up, we, we do uh, like to ask guests for Maybe advice or, or things say uh, advice for people coming into the markets uh, uh, and people who are interested in maybe global macro and economics. Any particular uh, 
things you read or did during your career that were particularly influential that you would share and pass on to people as good as advice as, as things to read or do? Well, first of all, for people who are investing, um, don't look for the hot stock. Um, you know, it's, I mean, looking for the hot stock is like sitting down and playing at a casino. The whole point is to own the casino. Then you're going to make money all the time. And if you, you know, you can just invest broadly, uh, um, on assets that depend upon the long-term growth of the global economy, which is a pretty good bet and you could do just fine. And so I think that investing should be a way to supplement your income and to allow your income, your savings grow faster over time, but it shouldn't be a way of making a quick killing. Um, that's a good, good way to get, get burnt. Um, in terms of how to you know, d- develop and understand global financial markets, I think everybody owes it to themselves to do that. And sometimes people pretend they're not good at math or, or whatever, and so they, they, oh, they don't understand it. Look, it's, it's very important. I mean, if people understand things about their own health, they need to understand things about the financial health. Stocks and bonds and, and uh, investment alternatives are not that confusing. There are a lot of people who try to make them confusing, but they're at, at root, they're not that, that confusing. And you really need... Even if you're using a financial advisor, you need to have a sense of it yourself. I mean, you know, when I visit a doctor, um, yes, I'm going to ask the doctor for his expert advice, but I'm also going to check out as much as I can well, what on earth's wrong with me before I go in there so I understand what language he's talking. And equally, investors really just, just take the time to think a little bit about what you're trying to do here, how much money you're going to have to save, what sort of rate of return you're need needing to get. Don't expect the markets to do what they're not going to do. Um, and, you know, if, and, and you know, don't stretch for a term. Don't look for things, oh, the, this can only work if I can find something that makes me 10% per year. Do not do that. What you say is, look, I think I can make, as I said, you know, 7% per year from a 60-40 portfolio, what, what we think you can do in the long run. Okay, you can make that. Now, if, that doesn't, if that's not enough, then how are you spending money and how are you earning money? And you've got you to make those two things work in a way that, uh, that allows markets to help you out. Don't, don't expect markets to do what they can't do for you. Very, very fair and uh, sound and wise advice, I think. Well, uh, David, thanks very much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation. Um, so make sure to follow David's work because, as you can tell from today's uh, conversation, it's a very interesting and turbulent global macro environment we're living in. So it's as important as ever, as David says, to be well informed on global macro developments and everything contributing to an investment landscape. So from all of us here at Top Bidders Unplugged, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.